Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Fitness for Consumption. This is Paul Juris, and I am here with Gregory Gordon. Hello, and hello. Gregory, we're we're doing something a little different today. Why don't you tell us about we what's are, happening indeed. here with this episode? Okay, well, no need, no need for alarm. So, you know, initially we set out to talk about things that are interesting to us and talk to people that are interesting to us. So along those lines. Um, if you've been listening to our podcast, you would know that the two subsequent episodes we've uh, produced have been on power and then time under tension. So we, we want to talk about power because we feel like it's, some, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot and is really not well understood. And then power led to time under tension because typically in the, in the lay population, when you talk about in, improving strength, people always seem to give the advice of increasing time under tension. And so from there, there's a natural segue to hypertrophy, which is the growth of muscle tissue. So we felt that speaking about hypertrophy was just sort of the natural bookend, not only to these three episodes, but actually to the end of our season, which is a 10-episode run. And, you know, we could probably argue this about a lot of the episodes we've done, but hypertrophy in particular really has a very significant exercise physiology component to it, meaning mm -hmm. on a cellular level, what is happening at the mitochondria and the actin and myosin? And, and for both you and I, you know, we've been through this literature, but this is not really our, um, you know, this, this is not our strength. Well, let me speak for myself. This is not my strength. No, sure. hey, listen, you're speaking for both of us. I'm not a physiologist. Right. So, you know, did we learn this stuff? Sure. When yeah. we went to grad school, we took some courses, but this isn't what I do in my everyday life. So, no, this is a new thing when we when we start to wade into physiology and we need help. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we definitely need help with this topic. And so one of the best things about doing this podcast has been the ability to tap into our collective network and some of the professors I had during grad school that made a really big impression on me. So there was one professor in particular, Dr. Fred Demena, um, and not only is Dr. Demena a 
a PhD in exercise physiology and oxygen kinetics in particular. He also happens to be a former professional bodybuilder on the natural bodybuilding level um, for many years during the 90s. So he, I thought, was a good person in particular to talk to about hypertrophy. Well, you know, what's really interesting about that is if we're going to talk about hypertrophy and muscle growth, I mean, it's one thing to talk to a physiologist who studies it in the laboratory, but now here's a guy that, at least from my perspective, was really heavily focused on muscle mass and muscle growth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a bodybuilder, but mm-hmm. from no, the I'm outside not. looking in, I, who better to talk to than someone who not only studies it from a scientific perspective, but also does it? you know, in the gym and, and that's part of his life. And what was interesting about our conversation with him was in talking about how he got into this field, you know, he said that he didn't really know what he wanted to do when he went to school, but he knew that he liked bodybuilding mm-hmm. and he started off as a bodybuilder, which mm-hmm. then got him interested in science and his academic career took mm-hmm. off. But he started as a bodybuilder. And so we're talking And I thought, this is a guy who's going to put on a huge amount of muscle. So this is the guy to talk to because he's going to be big and we could find out what that means. And then he said something in the conversation which completely threw me for a loop and sort of changed the whole tenor of the conversation going forward. Just have a listen for a second and hear what he says about muscle growth. I think a lot of this depends on why you're trying to gain muscle. You know, there's a big difference between a 60-year-old person, well, myself, for example, I'm now 59 years old, and what I want to do now, you know, I mean, I'm basically just looking to maintain the muscle on my body for health purposes uh, versus somebody who's a bodybuilder. In that that case, um, you know, goals are dramatically different. While the competitive bodybuilder is going to be very big on pictures and things like that, because that's all they need. They don't need hypertrophy. They don't need strength. They don't need any of it. They just need to look good. All right. So Gigi, like, you know, here he says, like, competitive bodybuilders don't need to be big or they don't need to be strong. And they just want to look good. I mean, I thought that was an amazing comment. So it kind of... All of a sudden now my brain's spinning and I'm not ready to jump into a detailed discussion of science anymore because this is now all about aesthetics. What did you think about that? Yeah, so bodybuilding is something I find I kind of follow on the periphery. There's a lot of bodybuilding competition, but for professional bodybuilding, Mr. Olympia is kind of like the gold standard, the uh, winning the Super Bowl of bodybuilding. And the current champion is by far not the biggest guy. He's just very symmet. When you look at his physique, it's incredibly symmetrical. And, um, you know, there's no body part that you would say, you know, is overwhelming another body part. So, yeah, it made sense when he was saying it. But definitely wouldn't have been my perspective going in talking about bodybuilding. So here we are with someone who only wants to look at and we're going to ask him questions about hypertrophy and i guess you launched this you know you asked them like a straight up basic question right so as pj as you know as i like to say in some of these podcasts let's begin at the beginning so to me the most important thing to ask was just 
So what's happening at the cellular level? And so when we talk about a muscle, we're talking about a muscle cell. So what's happening at the cellular level when, when we undergo hypertrophy? And let's listen to what he said. Well, as with everything hypertrophy related, there is controversy. Um, one of the first things is the whole hypertrophy versus hyperplasia. Uh, right. Can you explain that? Yeah. So basically, hypertrophy means that the muscle volume has increased. And we have the contractile elements that are responsible for tension development, actin and myosin. So, you know, the question is uh, with uh, hyperplasia versus hypertrophy, hypertrophy simply means there's more actin and myosin because for some reason the body interprets the need to have more of a tension generating capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is with hyperplasia, what would ha- actually happen is there would be splitting. It's very controversial. I don't even think it's that controversial. There, you know, it, 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 it's difficult to tease this out. But generally speaking, hypertrophy, if not 100% responsible, is at least responsible for the vast majority of muscle growth that happens uh, subsequent to tricking your body into thinking it needs more muscle on it. So to to sort of simplify that a little bit, is it appropriate to say that hypertrophy means the cells are growing and hyperplasia, the cells are splitting? Is that a fair statement? Uh, yes, I, I would I would say that that differentiates between the two. And of course, you know, the other thing is both can be occurring. Sometimes we try to simplify things too much when we, we discuss physiology and we want it to be an end or proposition. But we always have to remember that the process of changing the body via exercise training or the removal of exercise training either, it, it's not a, a, a something where the body says, oh, you know, I want to be a bodybuilder or I want to do this, I want to do that. It's just adaptations that occur. And uh, the question is, if the body feels the need to increase uh, its ability to generate tension, it has to then weigh that against any negatives that might be associated with that. And, you know, there, there's going to be checks and balances in place that might say, wait a minute, we don't need that extra hypertrophy. That's going to be bad for X or Y. So ultimately, you have to ask yourself, how does the body interpret the stimulus that it's receiving? And then how does it adapt? So the question is, you know, how does the body interpret the stimulus? And does it does it decide it needs more actin and myosin to develop tension or does it just split the actin and myosin that's there? And again, probably more so, if not all, the former. You ask him a simple question, you didn't get a simple answer. <laughs> you got a, 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 you know, you got a controversy. So what do we think here? Yeah, well, first, let me just say categorically, every guest we've had on has never answered questions in the way I thought they were going to answer questions prior to taping the podcast. Well, he didn't disappoint. So. <laughs> he did not disappoint. So, um, yeah, first of all, the hyperplasia, if you, you know, even from like a men's health sort of consumer fitness level, you'll hear the term hyperplasia, and it's it's commonly sort of banted about as to like what's happening when we get b- bigger muscles. Mm-hmm. And simply put, as... Dr. Fred said, um, you know, it's a question of is the actual muscle fiber itself just building more proteins and getting bigger or are you building more muscle fibers? And he seems to indicate that 
um, hyperplasia, which would be building more muscle fibers, is not really happening, and it's much more about just you're, we're adding proteins to the muscle fibers we have. Right, so the muscle now, fibers the themselves bit, are expanding as opposed to multiplying is one way right. of looking at it, right? The little bit I've read into this topic uh, is in cats, they find to, they tend to find some hyperplasia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, it's one of the things um, I think we've spoken about in terms of research studies is, look, when they're using animal models, um, you find a lot of really fascinating adaptations, but you can't assume that the human nervous system operates exactly like a rat or the belly of a locust, like I learned about central pattern generators, or even a cat. So, um, yeah, that's my basic understanding, that hyperplasia seems to be in a human being, um, not what is happening when we undergo hypertrophy. And I think on a practical level, it you know, it's like, so what? And I think for people listening, if we're interested in growing muscle, do we really care if the fibers are just ballooning up or if we're making more fibers? And Probably for not. me personally, in a practical sense, I don't think it matters very much. I think from a scientific perspective, we want to know what's going on in the system. But for all of us in the gym, you know, if we're looking in the mirror and if, as Fred said, all he cares about is looking good, I don't think anybody's looking beneath the skin to see how those things are growing or not. So right. practically speaking, you know, it's not that critical for me anyway. You know, I won't speak yeah, to both I of agree. us, but, you know, I think it's useful for our, our audience to at least understand that there is a difference. And if they're seeing these terms show up in the literature, that they, they know what they are. Then you asked him a question about how hypertrophy is measured. And I thought that really evoked an interesting response. So how is hypertrophy measured? So like one way I could do it is just a tape measure, right? Like if I want to measure the size of my biceps, like the famous Hulk Hogan 21-inch biceps, if I want to see if I'm gaining hypertrophy, I could take a tape measure. But how is it actually measured in a lab well, setting? Well, uh, you're talking about on a chronic basis or on a, an acute basis? You tell me. How do you well, guys that, how would you measure That's an interesting question. So every exercise session has an acute effect. And then Mm -hmm. the chronic effect is the so-called training effect that you want to get over the Mm -hmm. course of, uh, you know, multiple repetition of of the acute effect. So in the research setting, what we want to do is we want to measure the acute effect of each exercise bout in some type of attempt to uh, figure out which ones are the most effective. The problem is for many studies and for many years, circulating growth hormone and, and other anabolic hormones were used as a proxy measure to assume that the workout brought about hypertrophy. So let me just interject something there, because this is something that I actually misinterpreted when we were communicating prior to this. So what you're saying is that people are looking at the presence of human growth hormone in the blood and correlating that with some hypertrophic change in the muscle architecture but it's not necessarily true. Is that what you're getting at? In other words, if you do one workout, you're not going to walk out of the gym and be appreciably bigger where you're going to be able to detect it with a tape measure 
as um, as as be amazing if you could, or even a um, some of the more advanced measures, um, like a DEXA. Yeah, like a DEXA or um, imaging, you know, uh, mm-hmm. imaging techniques where you can go in and actually measure muscle volume. So you're not going to be able to detect it on that front. I mean, you might be able to detect changes in fluid and things like that that come from one workout, but but you're not going it, to, it, it's like a drip in a sink, you know, a drip in the sink. Um, yeah, that, that doesn't look like a problem. Your drain is stopped up. You leave the house, you come back, you have a flood. It, it adds up. But you do want to try to get some type of measurement after the workout that will tell you whether this workout was effective in, in at least adding one drip to the gathering water. And growth mm-hmm. hormone, the, the circulating anabolic hormones after a workout were used as markers, but a number of studies have suggested that that really doesn't do the trick and it's um, west at all. They did a couple studies. They did a, an acute and a chronic study where they manipulated the growth hormone response based on adding leg exercise in addition to doing an arm exercise bout. So in one condition, mm-hmm. they did leg and arm. In the other one, they did arm only. So you say, well, what mm-hmm. did that prove? Well, what it proved was by adding the leg exercise, it spiked the anabolic hormone circulating response post-exercise. And so theoretically then, the arm workout should have benefited from that. Uh, right. Both on an acute right. basis, they whatever they measured acutely should have been should have shown greater hypertrophy, and whatever you know measurements they used from a chronic standpoint should have also shown an increase, and they didn't show that. So the bottom line is those things, those circulating hormones, have to be present for the hypertrophic stimulus to have been applied, but their presence does not ensure that a hypertrophic stimulus had been applied. The thing that does, the end-all and be-all, is protein synthesis because these contractile elements are proteins. So if Protein synthesis exceeds breakdown after the workout, then there will be a buildup that is indicative of hypertrophy. So the end all and be all is protein synthesis rates. If we measure that, then we measure the acute response. And if we get the protein synthesis uh, uh, indicative of a hypertrophic response having been elicited, then, of course, that that workout was successful for that purpose. So, Gigi, that was, you know, I, I first of all, didn't expect him to get into a discussion of HGH. But then when he mm-hmm. did, I thought it was really fascinating because, you know, frankly, I've known people in the past who've taken human growth hormone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it seems like maybe... You know, it's like drinking water. Does it really help? I don't know. Yeah. So a lot of these studies on HGH and, you know, seeing really large spikes in the blood um, post-exercise come from a Japanese researcher, Dr. Takarada, 
And what he did is that he would he started this method of restricting blood flow. So he would put something like a modified blood pressure cuff around either like the proximal part of like the arm or the proximal part of the thigh. And sometimes that's all he would do. Sometimes people would walk on a treadmill. Sometimes people would actually do resistance training with light loads, 10 to 30% of their one rep max. Mm -hmm. And you see literally unbelievable spikes in HGH in the blood post-exercise. So there's one study that Dr. Takarada has where people were had a um, – blood pressure cuff type thing on their on the proximal part of their thigh and they're doing some knee extension and there's like a 290 percent increase in hgh after you know they measured the blood about 30 minutes after the exercise so you would think that thigh muscle would just kind of blow oh my up, yeah right? like would... yeah like where can you buy that stuff sign me yeah, up exactly. for 200 300 so what happened but here's yeah here's the wah, wah. so the the unfortunately our muscles have receptors, and Dr. Demena alluded to it a little bit, but he didn't go into detail about there's this lock and key um, relationship between neurotransmitters. And so you can produce 10,000% increase in HGH, but if your muscles don't have receptor sites that are amenable to taking in that HGH and putting it into the muscle tissue, it just floats around the bloodstream and then just gets reabsorbed. So unfortunately... The wah-wah of these studies were that they were done on untrained, typically 65, 75-year-old people that are not well-conditioned. So, yeah, they, the stimulus was enough to really spike their HGH, but because their muscles are not um, amenable to taking in that HGH and doing something with it because they haven't done the strength and conditioning to make their muscles hungry for that hormone, um, you know, ultimately, it just sort of floats around in the blood. Maybe it has, it, it does seem to have some benefit, but not nearly the benefits you would expect when you see numbers like so that. So what Fred was saying in our conversation with him is just because you look at a research, a strength training research study that shows an increase in HGH in the blood post-exercise, that doesn't mean you're going to get muscle growth. Because if right. those HGH molecules are not binding with the receptors in the muscle, then nothing happens. So then mm -hmm. he, you know, he gets on to talk about protein synthesis. And the real indicator of whether a change is occurring is that protein synthesis or these markers of protein synthesis are now present. Because that means that the system is building proteins, and those proteins are actin and myosin filaments because they're made of protein. Right. And so that leads you to muscle growth. So HGH right. is not a good proxy or index for muscle growth, but protein synthesis may be. Now, right. I followed that up, though, and asked him, look, that's all great. But most of us don't have the equipment, machinery, <laughs> laboratory to be measuring protein synthesis. So, you right. know, can nor we, do we want to. Yeah, right. I don't. <laughs> I don't want to walk around the lab with a needle and start pulling muscle biopsy samples right. out of people's limbs. So, yeah, what we really need to ask ourselves is like, how do we measure this in a realistic way? Like, if we're looking at growing muscle, what do we do now? we played his earlier comment about what his interests are. And he's like, just take a picture, right? So 
look at it, look at a picture, which he said, by the way, he said that was objective. Um, yeah, I might differ with that a little bit. I might call a, a yeah. looking at a photograph subjective. Yeah, I think that's fair. But, you know, what do we do? Like, how do, how do we measure people's muscle growth in a meaningful way that, um, you know, people can make use of? Because you're not going to be measuring protein synthesis. Yeah, well, frankly, the simplest way is just to use a tape measure, which many of us have done. Now, he had a funny comment about that, yeah. which we should listen to. Yeah, here. let's listen. And then if we string all those together, we get a chronic effect that can be measured uh, in a rudimentary way by tape measure, but of course that's a, that's not um, that's a difficult one because you know I've I've seen many times the personal trainer just makes the arm one a little looser and the uh, <laughs> the waist one a little tighter and uh, hey it's great. <laughs> so that was listen you know that's that is marketing and we. We we have to sell ourselves too, you know. It's like the the old gag when somebody's getting on a scale and you stick your foot on the back of the scale and push a little bit. So the first time <laughs> they get on the scale, they're about five pounds heavier. The next time yeah, you get right. they get on, you take your foot off and they're five pounds lighter. And like, hey, look, you lost weight. <laughs> so you know we we have to market ourselves and and somehow that's done. But look, let's be you know let's be honest and let's be legitimate and. And measure things. We've always talked about measuring stuff, Gigi, in all of our mm -hmm. discussions on what we do and how we do it and, and whether we're making progress. And we've advocated actually measuring things. So this is one of those yeah, things absolutely. you measure with a tape. Yep. You know, and there are apps and for look, that now too, by the way. Yeah, and there's a lot of different stuff. So uh, what can a tape measure tell you? It can tell you girth. Can it tell you exactly whether it's body fat or muscle growth? No, not necessarily. But between the apps and scale, like I have a scale that has Bluetooth that tells me my hydration level, tells me my body fat percentage. Um, now, PJ, we've spoken about this before on our fine print episodes about the difference between reliability and validity. And reliability just means that like it's reliable. You could stand on a broken scale and it can tell you you're five pounds off each time. And that's reliable. That's right. It doesn't mean that it's valid, though, that it's actually giving you accurate information. That's right. So, look, you, you've got to take a little bit of a leap of faith, whether you're using your Apple Watch or a Fitbit or the scale. or. But between all these things that are available to us now, which, by the way, when I started out as a trainer in 1999, this stuff just wasn't available. Like, you had a tape measure. You had um, – you know, you had the calipers, you had like, if you could afford it to go to a, a lab and get submerged underwater. But the fact that all this stuff is available, if you're really interested in hypertrophy and body fat and body composition, you know, make a reasonable investment. My scale was $79, um, you know, not bank breaking, you know, make a reasonable investment, add that to a $2 tape measure, add some pictures. Um, and I think, yeah, you'll be more than happy with getting the data that you need in order to to move towards your goal. Yeah, and look, if what Fred says rings true to a lot of people, which is you only care what you look like, then ultimately right. the measure is what you see in the mirror, right? So taking a picture and looking at it and then subjectively saying, do I like what I see? Now, 
that's one way of looking at hypertrophy if in fact just muscle growth for the sake of muscle growth is important to you. But, you know, there are some people that think, and, and we've seen this in the literature, we've seen this in, in newsstand publications, that having more muscle is better because it increases your metabolic rate and it burns more calories. So for some right. people, they want to get bigger because they think that it's going to help them burn calories and lose weight. And Fred mm -hmm. said something there, which also kind of threw us for, off, you know, that was like, Absolutely. wait, that's yep. not what we expected to hear. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so uh, let's listen to what he said. The question is, how much strength do you need? Um, if I'm only shoveling snow and taking the garbage out, I don't necessarily need the amount of strength necessary to squat 300 pounds. So then the question becomes, well, what harm does it do? Well, it's more weight that you have to carry around with yourself. It speeds your metabolism. Well, that's a good thing. Well, wait a minute. Is that a good thing? Then you have to eat more to maintain your weight. And we know, unfortunately, with what we've done to the environment, now you're taking potential for taking in more toxins. The more you eat, you know, I, 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 I'm an eater, so I still eat, you know, 4,000 calories a day because I do, I do have a decent amount of muscle for a 60 year old. And I do have, I do a lot of cardio, uh, because I like to eat. But then again, if I was eating half as much, maybe I'm not getting all the toxins that are involved in some of the foods we eat. So again, functionality has to be taken into account and how much muscle do we need in terms of, uh, just to live, to, to carry out normal function. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's an interesting paradox because I think it's a commonly held belief that having more muscle mass is going to increase the metabolic rate, which is going to burn more calories, which is going to help you lose weight. But what you said is really critical here because people don't necessarily realize that you're going to have to eat more to maintain that muscle mass because it's an energetic process. And so it's not necessarily as beneficial as people may think it is. There is a lot of research now that suggests that maybe it's healthier to not quite eat as, uh, as much or as often or whatever the case may be. You know, I mean, again, it, it all comes down. We're not made to sit at a dinner table and eat. We're made to eat to survive, you know, and that, that usually involves long periods of not eating and then periods of feast when we are finally able to find food. That's kind of the natural way that we exist. And by the way, that's why we have insulin resistance, which is our, a disease that you know is, is a major step on the way to type 2 diabetes. Well, that insulin mm -hmm. resistance that is detrimental now is every bit as functional at one point in time when we did have long periods of deprivation because when we have a long period of deprivation, it helps to be insulin resistant because it preserves blood glucose. So a lot of this stuff in the body, we make the mistake of going with good or bad. This is good. Mm -hmm. This is bad. Agreed. And that's, that's right. wrong. And um, insulin resistance is a fine example. The bottom line is just because something in the body, we can't say it's good or bad. All we can say is that it's necessary for survival. And there may be negative repercussions or positive repercussions. And the same thing with muscle growth. There's probably an ideal amount that you would want to have if you go above it, if you go below it, 
it's a problem. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. So Gigi, you know, my, my reaction to that was like, wait, you know, I never thought of that really because, right, exactly, I mean, yeah. you know, you think, yeah, be, the, you have more muscle mass. It's definitely got to increase your metabolic rate, but yeah, you got to fuel that. Right. And by the way, that's like, if you're on social media, that's, that's the part they always leave out either by ignorance or, you know deception but like one or the other so many of these programs that tout like you know you should join this workout program because you're going to build muscle and that's going to increase your metabolic rate they never talk about the other side is that if you want to maintain the muscle that you've built yeah you've got to take in more calories so so you're basically just nullifying any increased metabolic benefit you're getting from it because you're eating more right so you know that's kind of an interesting thing it's just absolutely through me and i thought wait that makes so much sense why didn't i think of that yeah yeah i know it's it's one of those so obvious uh things you you think you would be aware of but yeah you just you know never thought of it like that. okay so you know we've talked about um the physiology side of this and i think what i want to do is just get a little bit more practical so if people are mm-hmm. interested in in putting on muscle mass uh, what do we need to do in order to accomplish that? And we'll do that right after we take this short break. All right, so we're back. And, you know, we've had this interesting back and forth and conversation with Fred Mena, And I asked him if we could start to get practical And Gigi, you asked him a question about a conversation previously that we had with David Bain. What was that? So we had, uh, hopefully you've been listening to our podcast and uh, you heard the episode with David Bain where we were talking about power training Mm -hmm. and power training is rate of tension development training. And uh, because there's a preconceived notion by many people that as you get older, you should treat older people like fine china and they should only do very slow and isometric type movements and uh pj i know both you and i don't subscribe to that and so we asked david bame who's published a lot of literature on that topic what his thoughts were and he said to quote him that he feels that power training is important for everyone from the ages of six to 96. so i essentially asked fred if he thought hypertrophy training which is, you know, we're, we're, we're now adapting the training to a slightly different type of stimulus, if that's important for uh, a lifetime perspective. And I think our focus there was just saying, look, do we, is it important to get bigger uh, across the lifetime or at least to maintain some type of muscle volume? Mm-hmm. And... He said something to the effect that, well, let's listen to what he said anyway. (laughs) Well, um, 
I, I agree about the power development first off. In fact, I often tell my students the rate of force development is extremely important for basically all sports. Uh, that's intuitive. The activities of daily living that an older person or just anybody who's not an athlete might be training for, one might argue that strength is more important and the rate at which it can be developed is not as important. Problem with that theory is if you step on an uneven surface, what will typically happen mm -hmm, is right. your ankle will roll uh, outward because your everters will not isometrically act, let's say, mm -hmm. quick enough. To Quickly. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. So now the question is, were they weak and couldn't act or as you were going down, were they developing sufficient tension to prevent you from going down? They just didn't do it quick enough. So I would agree right. that that there is a component where even in activities of daily living for an older person. But with that having been said, strength is also important. But the question is, how much strength do you need? Um, this is interesting because, you know, he's not really addressing hypertrophy with his response there, he's really talking about strength. Right. And so I think that, you know, clearly there's an advantage to being stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can increase our overall capacity to do something, then anytime we're working at some constant load, if our capacity has gone up, that makes that constant load easier. So... Right. I mean, yep. relatively speaking, it makes life easier. And may I interrupt for a second, PJ? So you have a unique definition of strength that I is different than definitions I've heard otherwise. So can you define strength? Well, my definition is the ability to apply force. Right. It's not necessarily how much weight you can lift. I mean, that certainly relates to it, but it's how effectively can you apply force to the ground, to other objects, so that you can move, mm -hmm. whether it's moving yourself or not move, if that's the goal. Mm -hmm. So that's my definition of strength. Mm -hmm. And he was really getting into a discussion on strength there. But what was really interesting in his response was his question, like, how much do you really need? It's Again, we've, all, we've said this since we started this podcast. More is not necessarily right. better. Right? Better is better. So he's even asking the question, and again, from a bodybuilder, this really threw me because I figured the stronger you get, the better. But he's saying, no, like having too much strength isn't necessarily a good thing either, yeah. you know, because you, you get your body weight goes up too much. You got to lug that mass around with you all day. Right. So that's, you know, uh, and again, our podcast is all about perspectives and there's very little right and wrong and. So I would quibble a little bit that essentially, you know, <laughs> I remember 20 years ago when I started as a trainer and I would do my consultations, every guy would come in and be like, I want to get big, but I don't want to look like Arnold, which is an outdated reference now. And unfortunately, back then, at least you didn't say the rock. <laughs> That's right. And unfortunately, I actually give CrossFit a lot of credit for destigmatizing the idea of women weightlifting but when i first started as a trainer and i'm not casting any aspersions i'm just sharing my my real life experience when i started as a trainer in the 90s um my female clients would often say i'm interested in lifting weights but i don't want to get huge and i don't want to put on too much muscle so 
And it was amongst trainers is always a joke because like we were people that lived in the gym and like if it was that easy to get big and strong, we would all be, we all wanted to be big and strong. And it was really hard. We were there hours a day lifting weights with each other. So, um, and that's having testosterone. Yeah, that's right. So (laughs) my perspective is you want to try to get as strong as you can because it's pretty hard to achieve. And with the caveat of like, for the average person, I don't expect that person is going to spend more than three to four hours a week strength training at most. Um, I totally understand Fred's perspective. Um, hypertrophy is a little bit different. And again, it's it's along the same lines as, as if, if it was that easy, I would look like Sylvester Stallone, but it's not that easy. So the gym I go to now is actually a bodybuilding gym. And I see some individuals that have a lot of muscle mass. And to me, again, I'm just my, my perspective. They don't tend to move all that well. So I, you know, to me, there's a point of hypertrophy to where if it limited my ability to, to move freely and like going up steps was a challenge because I just had so much extra mass. To me personally, again, not casting aspersions, that's not, I don't need that for my life. I don't make my living by being a bodybuilder. But I would still like to be as strong as I possibly could within a certain dimension of size. Yeah. And, you know, look, we we all remember the phrase being muscle bound, um, having so much muscle that we couldn't move. There was a time in professional sports that weight training was discouraged Mm -hmm. because teams felt that athletes were just focusing on getting too big and strong and they couldn't move effectively. I don't know. If that's true, I mean, yeah. certainly there's weight training that's going on now and it gets down to, well, it's not whether you're training, Definitely but how you're not. training. Yeah. So, so we don't advocate that at this point, but, um, there is a, is a reasonable question. How strong do you need to be? How much stress do you need to put on your body? You need to be strong enough to apply force to, to objects in space and to be able to move yourself around and do the things that you want to do. And I think Fred will suggested that with activities of daily living that you need to have a certain amount of strength and power to do that and that led us to what i think was the most fascinating part of this conversation Mm -hmm. with him and you asked him a question about reps because there's this notion that in order to encourage the greatest amount of growth we need to be training within a certain rep range. That's right. So, Gigi, tell us, like, what, what were you thinking when you asked him that question? <laughs> All right. Well, if you've been coasting along And, so and just far, in retrospect, yeah, I'm so. cutting you off here. Just in retrospect, given his answer, what were you thinking when you asked him that question? <laughs> I mean, well, only, yeah. like, he went off like a rocket, but go ahead. Knowing him well, I expected a very uh, granular answer, and we certainly got one. Um, and as, as, as I was about to say, if, been, if you've been coasting along so far, here's the time to buckle up your seatbelt because we're going to start to thread together a lot of concepts that we've been speaking about almost for the past two seasons of this podcast. So, you know, PJ, as we've said in the basically the liner notes to our podcast, we cover everything from the pop culture aspects of fitness to, you know, as granular uh, as neuroscience can get, or at least that's uh, that's our intent to do. 
Um, and so rep ranges, if, if you are even the most casual, you know, fitness consumer, you have an idea or you might have some idea that like, okay, if I want to build hypertrophy, I should be in this rep range. If I'm trying to build definition, I should be in this end of the rep range. If I'm trying to build, we've all heard these things. And these are like, everybody's heard this stuff. So yeah, look, we wanted to ask someone knee deep in the field. What does the research really say and how does it hold up? So I simply asked him, based on Jim Lore, as he likes to say, there's this idea that the ideal range for hypertrophy, again, like we spoke about in the very beginning, which is swelling up the size of the muscle, the general theory is that you want to stay in the range of anywhere from 6 to 12 reps. And we asked him that question, and this is the answer we got. Rep ranges. Well, some very important studies by Mitchell et al., tell us that the whole rep range is overrated Hmm. and the reason i say that is because of the word of one word that we have to appreciate in all of this is intensity Mm -hmm. and intensity is often used in the research to describe weight Uh, whenever i review a study i tell them please remove that and just say load right intensity and load are two separate things you know, is 200 pounds squat heavy or light? Well, for one person, it might be heavy. And another person, it might be light. For me, it might be very, very heavy right now versus 20 years ago when it was very light. It's all relative. But the intensity is how hard it is for you. It's it's a non-measurable entity unless you use, you know, RPE or some subjective mm-hmm. measurement like that. It's a non-measurable entity. But it is, it, it is the key factor. And basically what, what studies have shown by Mitchell et al., they've shown that if you can get the same intensity, you can get hypertrophy even if it's a higher rep range. What is that intensity? Well, we don't know what intensity you have to reach, but it's probably safe to say it's either failure or at least somewhat close to failure. Hmm. So what failure means is you've reached... Uh, you know, the, the first failure is the concentric failure. Uh, there are multiple failures, by mm-hmm. the way, the common failure, which is concentric failure, which only occurs, by the way, at one specific place in the range of motion at the quote unquote sticking point, as mm-hmm. indicated by the strength curve. And you could theoretically go all the way to eccentric failure, which the eccentric capacity is a lot greater, but you can go to eccentric failure where you now can no longer even um, keep the weights from falling at a slower rate than gravity would pull them down. Mm-hmm. But um, so the question is, which failure do we need to go to? Who knows? But or do we even need to go to it? But the bottom line from this Mitchell studies was that if you do bring a set to failure, even if it's 50 reps, then you will get the same hypertrophic response because you are going to get the same muscle fiber recruitment. There's a drive through the recruitment hierarchy that occurs due to the not due to the weight you're lifting, but due to the intensity or the degree of effort associated with lifting that weight. And if you can drive through that hierarchy, you can get to those higher order fibers, those type twos that are more and more, much more, um, you know, amenable to the notion of hypertrophying. Well, Gigi, 
first of all, not only was that an interesting answer, but it actually challenges some of the things that we had been discussing in our previous episode. It's about time, which was about time under tension. Mm -hmm. And if you recall, what we were saying was that when you subject the system to prolonged contractions, you don't get recruitment all the way up the recruitment hierarchy. In mm-hmm. fact, some of those high threshold motor units are being not turned off, but they are being inhibited so that it makes it more difficult to get up there. And what Dr. Demena is saying here is all you need to do is kind of work yourself into a lather, basically. That's what he's talking about with intensity. intensity and, right. and Yeah, because... You know, his his definition of intensity, by the way, when he, we pulled up this Mitchell study, and I and I should have said that, we, we pulled this up to look at it because I hadn't read it. I don't think you had read I it. I definitely had not. Yeah, so we needed to really dive into this Mitchell study that he was talking about. But there is clearly a difference of opinion here or maybe a difference of interpretation, perhaps. Perspective, yeah. Perspective, because that's what this is all about. It's about perspective. So I immediately went to the Mitchell study because I wanted to understand what he knows that I don't know. And so I started reading this. Mm -hmm. And again, his definition of intensity, really, it's not reps, it's not load. Mm -hmm. By the way, he says people use the word load to refer to intensity, but he said load should be load. Mm -hmm. And I think we agreed with him on that. That's right. But... What Mitchell is actually talking about with intensity is volume, right? So that's how they define intensity, which is load times reps times sets times rest interval. All of that is combining to create the intensity of the workout. Right. So he's talking about a subjective intensity of just pushing yourself as hard as you possibly can and, you know, look, if you do 10%, if you do a really light load, 10% of max, but you do it 100 times, by the time you get to the 100th rep, you're going to be falling down. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do 95% twice, it's going to feel pretty intense after the second rep. So the subjective perception of intensity may be the same. But do you really get the same change in muscle mass when you do that? Well, so let's get into this Mitchell study, and right off the top, <laughs> exactly what we were talking about is one of the difficult um, aspects of the study is that they actually don't define intensity verbatim. So we have to sort of infer what they mean by intensity, um, and you know that right away casts a little bit of gray over, you know, understanding the study. And when we, I just want to make it clear that. You know, this is what this podcast and scientific discussion is all about. It's about perspectives. And one of the biggest issues with having different perspectives is there are people all over the globe that study motor control, motor learning theory, hypertrophy, and they're coming from different languages and different education levels. And so when we're not all agreeing on what the exact term is that we're looking at, and this isn't good or bad. This is just this is what it is. If you're if you're interested in this um, area of science, is that 
you know, you're just going to have different perspectives because even the term that we're basing all this around intensity is not clearly defined by these investigators. No, and the other thing that's not clearly defined is, you know, Fred made a, a point about talking about exercising or to failure. Right. And so he said you have to get to failure. But even in his own description of what that is, he's like, well, you could get to failure a lot of different ways. That's I mean, right. if you're using cadence, for example, and you, you miss the cadence, you're not going fast enough. That's failure. Well, is that really failure? I mean, that you're failing at something, but is that really neurological or physiological failure? And so he's offering different definitions of failure, which also makes it hard for us to interpret what these results really mean. Because if we can't say there's a definitive point to which you need to work, and it's sort of arbitrary based on some subjective experience, then how do we know what's really going on? So there are two parts of this, that Mitchell never really defined intensity and that we've got this sort of variable arbitrary definition of failure. And, you know, then it come, we have to look at these results a little bit because quite frankly, I interpret these a little bit differently than what I was led to believe in that conversation that we had. All right, cool. So we've defined already what is sort of arbitrary and hard to define, but let's look at what they objectively did find and start to discuss that. Okay, so this is what Mitchell did. He, he created three different conditions, and these are based on volume, not intensity. So again, load, reps, sets, and rest intervals. Mm -hmm. So he had one condition, which was a 30% RM load. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's 30% of maximum. The subjects did three sets of that to failure. Mm -hmm. All right, so three sets, 30% to failure. One condition that he did was 80% RM, mm -hmm. 80% of maximum, three sets to failure. So what we have right now are sort of equal volume, okay? Three sets of each, different loads, mm -hmm. but there would be different reps associated with getting to failure. Right. So the 30% load, you're going to do a lot more reps to get to failure than sure. the 80% load. So the volume is normalized, but one's a 30% load and one's an 80% load. And then lastly... They did an 80% load to failure, but only one set. Mm -hmm. So what they've done on that one is they've taken the volume way down. So now the question is, what is the effect of the total number of reps that you do or the total volume on muscle growth? Mm -hmm. And here's what they found. All three groups had increased muscle volume. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the one set group had a smaller increase than the others. Right. So what? that's the 80% with one set. So yes, if you do more volume, chances are you're going to see more growth. Mm -hmm. Even right? if you're doing the lighter load. Even if you're doing the lighter load. So if you're doing the lighter load, but you're doing a lot more of it, it's going to stimulate growth. Now we're not talking about the type of growth yet, mm -hmm. we're just talking about hypertrophy, measuring right. the total growth in muscle. But here's where the conversation gets interesting. 
He said that going to failure creates the same recruitment through the hierarchy, through the, the neuromotor hierarchy, Henneman size principle. Mm -hmm. So when you go to failure, you get recruitment all the way up the scale. Now, this directly contradicted some of the literature and some of the research that we presented in Time Under Tension. Right. Well, in some ways. So what we presented was that it seems that, based on the research we covered, that the system defaults to under sustained contractions to lower threshold motor units. But you can override that if you've got a very specific voluntary intention to do so. But even that appears to be finite. Yes. And so what's interesting about Mitchell, and we should just present the results first, and then I'll make this comment. They did show that type 1 and type 2 fiber sizes, now they, they do split them a little bit, but they're mostly talking about type 1s and type 2s. Mm -hmm. Now we know that there are in, intermediate fibers mm -hmm. or satellite mm -hmm. cells, but they showed that both type 1 and type 2 fiber sizes increased in all three conditions. Mm -hmm all three conditions, but the distribution of fiber type changes was different. So here's the interesting thing. Both 80% conditions showed comparable growth in both type 1s and type 2s. So that growth was somewhere between 16 and 20%. So when you're working at a high load, even if the volume wasn't as much, now we know that the lower volume condition 80% done one set didn't get the total amount of hypertrophy right but both of those conditions showed roughly equal growth in both type ones and type twos mm -hmm. here's the interesting thing the 30% condition low load high reps to failure both type ones and type twos increased but the type ones increased 30% and the type 2s increased 18%. Right. So there was nearly double the growth in type 1 fibers than there was in type 2 fibers, and definitely more so than in the 80% conditions. Right. So what does that mean to you? What it means to me is that when you put someone under a low, long, sustained, ongoing contraction to failure when you're increasing time under tension mm -hmm. because the only way to get to failure at 30% is to do this for like five minutes, <laughs> right? So when you're increasing time under tension, do you see some growth in type twos? Yes, but mostly what this is telling me is that the system is defaulting and it's really cycling down into the type ones mm -hmm. in order to preserve the type twos. So you're seeing more growth in the type 1s because there isn't necessarily the need to go all the way to the type 2s. You're at 30% load, doing sustained contractions, probably at a constant cadence. There's no need to go all the way up to the high threshold units. And so what you're seeing is even though you're going to failure, you're getting growth in type 1 fibers. You're getting more oxidative, more endurance capacity, but you're not seeing the same kind of change going up all the way to the type twos. That's what I see. Right. Now, someone could say, all right, PJ, well, that's just your opinion. But in the study, they also look at some strength measures, which I think adds a little bit more validity to that perspective. So let's go over that part, too. Yeah. So, you know, 
Fred made an interesting comment, and he said, going to failure may cause hypertrophy, mm-hmm. but not necessarily increase strength because of the neural component. Right. And this study now, clearly reflects that. That's right. Now, he didn't specify what that neural component was, but what's really interesting about it is he looked at 1RM, Mitchell looked at 1RM changes in all three of those conditions, and they all did increase their one rep max. I mm-hmm. mean, they all got stronger. But the strength gains in both 80% groups were greater than the 30% group, mm-hmm. significantly greater. So what does that tell you? So when you're working at a heavier load, one of the things that we talked about in our power episode was in order to get power gains, you need to be working at high intensities. Now, intensity in this case is reflecting load, not volume. So you need to be at high loads in order to recruit all the way up the scale. So when you're at 80% of your max, you're working at a high enough load that you have to activate these high threshold fast twitch motor units. Mm -hmm. That's increasing your strength and power, by the way. But when you're at a 30% load, there's no reason to go up there. Mm -hmm. Even if you're going to failure, even if intensity, as Fred is suggesting, is high, your system doesn't go there. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's probably doing the opposite. It's probably preserving those so you don't fatigue them. Now, see, that's it's interesting because um, in our prior episodes, we said that, look, we think that these studies show that there is a reasonable case to be made that under sustained um, contractions that your system defaults to using the lower threshold motor units, but you can voluntarily override it. Now, when they are looking at the, the one rep max, you would have to assume that even the people that have been doing the 30%, they are trying as hard as they can to do that one rep max, uh, unless for whatever reason they came in with a very particular bias not to. But you would have to just take on face value that they are doing the best they can to recruit their high threshold motor units there. And the fact that they are still significantly less than the other two groups, I think, lends some credence to the fact that when you are training at that low intensity yeah you just are not um exploiting the the higher threshold motor units as much as you are when you're doing higher load or high higher velocity training and i think you're right i think if you're at 30 percent, even if you go to failure i mean and this is what i asked you before if i do you know 30 percent as many reps as i can if i do 10 percent and I do 500 reps, am I going to get the same growth? Maybe. Am I going to get the same strength gains? That's not what we're seeing here. So in order to get stronger, you definitely need to recruit up the scale and get those high threshold motor units. I'm not seeing evidence here that you're really recruiting through the hierarchy, as Fred is suggesting that you're doing. And in fact, There was another study, and we'll put it in the show notes, that was uh, done by Compos and colleagues. And actually, Bill Kramer was in there. So Mm -hmm. the well-known physiologist, William Kramer, was in this study. Mm -hmm. And this was an eight-week progressive resistance uh, study. And they had three groups. They had a low-rep group. So four sets, three to five reps. They had an intermediate-rep group, three sets, nine to 11 reps. And then they had a high rep group, two sets of 20 to 28 reps. Mm -hmm. 
and they all went to failure. So the volume was normalized, mm -hmm. but there was high load, low rep. There was intermediate load, intermediate reps, and then there was low load, high reps. And what they found was that maximum strength increased most for the high load, low rep group. Now, when you're doing three to five reps, we talked about this in It's About Time, three to five reps is a cluster set. Yeah, could be. Yep. You know, that's what we were talking about. It's a small number of repetitions followed by a three-minute rest. That group got the greatest strength gains. And what's also interesting is they did look in changes in fiber types. And what they were seeing is in the low-load, high-rep group, they were seeing a shift in fiber type composition. So they saw more shift down to the, the type twos were involved. They were there and, and working, but they saw a shift to growth in a more oxidative, what they call the type 2AB, which is really taking the anaerobic, non-oxidative fibers and making them more oxidative or giving them more of an endurance capacity. Mm -hmm. But there's no indication in this study that there's growth in the highest threshold fiber types. So it's telling me you can get stronger if you use higher loads and push and doing low loads over a long period of time is not going to get it done. You can grow the muscle, but you can't get stronger and more powerful doing it. Right. And you know, this makes me think of PJ is that we have some evidence that a, a fairly large portion of our listening audience are people that are exercise professionals or people that are that uh, are really sort of like expert exercisers. And this anecdotally just makes sense, at least in my personal experience, that I know that when I've done long periods, months even, of like what I would consider hypertrophy training, which is a sort of like you know, 12 to 20 rep range. Yeah, I definitely see that I can put on some size, but I don't get stronger. And I don't get stronger until I start lifting heavier weights. And this is to say that you should not throw out your anecdotal experience because that means something. But at the same time, you shouldn't just dismiss research studies because it's really evidence-based, even though that's become sort of a you know, a noxious term to some degree. That's really what well, it's, it's supposed to be. Well, it's a cliche at yeah, this point. Yeah, it's a cliche, but... but it should be the combination of your anecdotal experience and what the research is supporting. And that, to me, this makes perfect sense to me because that's been my personal experience. The research is interesting here because it is suggesting that working at a higher intensity, as Fred said, if his, if his definition of intensity is this subjective effort that you put into it, which mm -hmm. is basically what he was saying. If you work really, really, really hard, even if it's with light weights and take yourself to complete exhaustion, failure, you're going to get muscle growth. Mm -hmm. And I agree. Mm -hmm. I, we're seeing that in these studies. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that you will necessarily see the same strength gains. We're also seeing that from these studies. Mm -hmm. And then he said this. Really, we shouldn't even worry about reps. We should worry about the time under tension. And the question is, how long under tension can you go and still get this drive through the recruitment hierarchy? Uh, you know, I think it's safe to say, certainly, you know, three minutes. So if you're doing a three-minute set, 
Um, once again, that's, you know, you could do 50 reps very easily. Um, if each, each rep is, you know, I mean, even five minutes, maybe. So I don't think we have the answers to those, but certainly, you know, you could stay on the load for a decent amount of time and still get this progressive serial recruitment through the recruitment hierarchy. Okay. So here's where, you know, I start to scratch my head and say, you know, we're not seeing from this evidence, the fact that we're seeing in one study, in the compost study, a downshift in growth to more oxidative type two fibers, not growth in the high threshold units. We're seeing lower strength gains, lesser strength gains when you're doing light weights for a long period of time, even though you're going to failure. To me, this is saying we're not recruiting up that hierarchy, but I think there is the possibility. And look, you know, if we're if you're running a marathon and you have to sprint up a hill, if you're doing some type of repetitive activity and suddenly you need to find a burst of energy, if you're a basketball player and you've been running for four quarters up and down the court and you have to jump to get that rebound, there is something there that says we probably can get there if we have to. And what we said in It's About Time is that the system is preserving it. Mm -hmm. It's deliberately desensitizing those motor units so that we don't overuse them. We don't abuse them. We don't fatigue them. But what if there's a real intention and we need to get there, Gigi? Well, it appears that we can. And, you know, that is, that's, a practical experience any of us have had. Um, and we're also talking a little bit about um, a motor control theory of dynamic systems theory, which is that, look, we are, we self-organize our movements in a way to be, um, to be energy efficient. And so, uh, and thankfully, most of this stuff is underneath our conscious control. But yeah, if we need to get out of the way of the bus, if we need to like suddenly stabilize ourselves if we step off a curb, we can um, recruit these high threshold motor units very quickly if we need to. And hopefully, if you've been training to induce those types of reactions, you're much better at it than if you haven't been. Absolutely. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we always ask the question, what really matters? That's right. And we put this question to Fred, and let's hear what he had to say. Well, as as an exercise physiologist and as somebody who ha who lives what they preach, um, forget about the weight training. Even we can go right into the whole idea of exercise. It's been a central component of my life. Now I do mostly cardio. Do still do the weights, um, but the bottom line is, no matter what it is, it's exercise. And there is now a blurring of exercise, or the word, you know, the term exercise. What is exercise? What is physical activity? Mm -hmm. And what is the, and that's something that really needs to be uh, analyzed a lot. How much better is it to exercise versus just to be physically active? And you say, what's the difference? Well, exercise by definition has to be uncomfortable. For something to be exercise, you have to be stretching the body outside its limit of comfort. Otherwise, it's physical activity. Now, some would argue physical activity is equally as beneficial. Some might argue it's more beneficial because you don't incur the same amount of, uh, you know, immune system 
um, you know, overload? I can't answer that question. I know what I feel. All right. And I still train very hard, especially with the cardio. Very, very hard. High intensity and even longer duration at a high intensity. It just seems right to me. Okay. So, you know, he's talking about exercising and not necessarily being physical activity. You know, that's a personal thing mm -hmm. because he said high intensity feels right to him. That's right. Okay. And you said, look, anecdotally, we have to go by what we feel. And I, I agree. Look, forget what the research says sometimes. You do what works for you. Mm -hmm. And not a lot of people really can tolerate high intensity exercise, nor do they want to. It's not even a question of whether they can, it's whether they will. Um, so doing something is always going to be better than not doing something, mm -hmm. right? So uh, what really matters to you? Well, that's a great question, PJ. Um, so first of all, yeah, it may seem like we're splitting hairs here a little bit between hypertrophy and strength training and power and like why even like they're all just sort of the same thing. And to the average person, I could totally see where they would just think, yeah, look, it's part of strength and conditioning or weight training. But they're really not. And we've taken pains to expose what the differences are and why they matter. And so what really matters to me is that you're aware of these things. And to use our term, the fitness ecosystem, is that so you can listen to this podcast and say, oh, they're taking that Mitchell study and they're you know, they're disproven parts of it. And that's not really what we're saying. We're just saying we have a different perspective. And by the way, if for whatever reason you have to, or you just happen to enjoy low, low training, totally fine. But within your fitness ecosystem and your periodization of a year, use that hypertrophy that you've built and then take part of your year and work on very high velocity movements, leaps, skips, jumps, hops, whatever. Just take what you've built and then transition that into exercises, which are, you know, you're moving at a very high rate of tension development, which, by the way, can be fun. Like, you know, like all the stuff I just said. So that's what really matters to me, that hypertrophy, I think, is important. There's some speculation that if you build muscle a little bit bigger and the attachment point on the bone actually shifts its angle of orientation slightly it can help your biomechanics and the way you move your skeleton so hypertrophy is good um it's worthwhile you know obviously there's a, a threshold to where if it's making it difficult to move it's debatable unless it's a life goal of yours or it's part of your livelihood but hypertrophy is good it's important power is good it's critical strength is good it's critical to me and so all of these things should be part of your fitness ecosystem and then like we say all the time it's just about what you like to do understanding what you're trying to do and then mixing it in throughout the course of a year to get the most out of your system that's what really matters well said so for me it's about adaptation and we started off our podcast series talking about why we move. And we said that fitness is a measure of how well you move. That's right. And in order to move well, we need to get our bodies to adapt to a variety of stimuli. Fred was really good about talking about adaptation. Mm -hmm. And so we need to force our system to adapt in as many ways as we can. So pick up a light weight and lift it a hundred times, pick up a heavyweight and lift it twice, mm -hmm. 
do endurance training, do cluster training, as we discussed in It's About Time, so that we can get a variety of stimuli acting on us, which forces us to adapt in a variety of ways. And that means that we can solve more movement problems and we can move better so that we can become more fit. That's right. Okay. So that wraps up this second season. It's been interesting to say the least. I'm looking forward to next season and to having people join us again on Fitness for Consumption. Yep. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our round table? What's the round table? Well, it's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.